Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. You're listening to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We pick up right now where we left off last week. Well, Dr. Dan, that is the question of the century, and part of the way we get through are in ways like we're accomplishing today. We are discussing these things candidly, and we're hoping that our radio audience is listening and will start the discussion uh, with their friends, their family, and uh, seek out more information. But you bring up a very uh, crucial point here. Our major medical organizations have let us all down. Unfortunately, over the years, they've become more and more business-oriented themselves. And actually, government regulation has been big business for a lot of the major medical organizations because they sell physicians, like the AMA, has almost a $100 million a year business selling physicians the coding books and uh, the compliance manuals for all of these government insurance uh, regulations. And our major medical organizations, like the specialty organizations, have really been consumed with lobbying Washington, D.C. regarding payment issues. But you and I are at the point, as most physicians are in the country now, the payment issues have really become majorly secondary to our loss of autonomy when it comes to our ability to deal with our patients as individuals on a patient-by-patient basis and also to practice the sort of medicine that we know is state-of-the-art medicine. So uh, if we could only get, and this is, of course, a a big wish, uh, our major medical organizations to come together to get the word out to the public that what is about to transpire is definitely not in the best interest of patients. And let's face it, all of us have to present ourselves sooner or later as patients. And it's certainly a destruction of the basic core sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship. And with it, really a change in the ethos of our country. Up to now, we have regarded the individual, regardless of disability, regardless of station in life, as a worthy individual of a person of worth and human dignity. With this new uh, system, we are going to shift that entire ethic to one where the individual is viewed really as how they are benefit to the state and secondarily as an individual. This is a true tragedy in the United States of America. Well, this is the socialist agenda, because in the socialist agenda, the individual means nothing compared to the, to the state, to the government. The real tragedy to me is that the government over the last hundred years, which is the progressive era in this country, starting basically with Woodrow Wilson, uh, is that there has been a conscious 
and really vicious attempt to demonize certain groups uh, to divide the country. You all know that a house divided against itself cannot stand, and that is the principle that the progressive agenda rests on. If you divide us up so that we are fighting each other, then we're not going to be paying attention to the fact that these elite oligarchs, the ones with the money and power, are the ones who are taking over the country and putting us all into slavery. Well, it's... It is evident, and these people now are speaking freely, like Ezekiel Emanuel and Donald Berwick. I actually have a quote uh, that I have, have repeated before, and I think it's very uh, worthwhile to, to think about what Donald Berwick had to say. He said, in the United States, he wrote, competition is a major reason for our duplicative, supply-driven, fragmented care system. He has publicly saluted Britain's socialized medicine for rejecting the, quote, immoral American system and the darkness of private practice enterprise. He said that the holy grail of universal coverage cannot be achieved with consumer-centered health care, but only through collective action overriding some individual self-interest. Now, let that sink in. (laughs) <laughs> it's exactly what you just got done describing about the goal of socialism. And here's an individual who's now running for governor in the state of Massachusetts. Well, you know, that's this is what we're really fighting. We are fighting a, a group of people at the top whose self-interest is based upon keeping the rest of us fighting with each other and keeping us down where they enrich themselves while they empower themselves, exempt themselves from everything that they put down on us. Uh, That, to me, is tyranny. It is the same tyranny that we suffered under British rule in the the 1770s under King George. It is really no different. That time you had one sovereign and his court who imposed their will upon the colonies. Now you have a group of people with wealth and power, uh, who will do anything to maintain that power at the expense of the freedom uh, of the rest of us. It's, it's completely and totally unconstitutional, but we haven't been following the Constitution for the last hundred years anyway. We see this over and over. Just uh, recently, I wrote a little op-ed piece on a, a blog site, and I entitled it, Got Cancer? Dude, Get Over It. And it was based on an article that is characteristic of exactly what you you said. I, I, I said it was Welcome to the Brave New World. It actually was a panel of experts uh, called the National Cancer Institute uh, who said that uh, removing the word cancer from slow-growing cancers could ease patients' fears and reduce the inclination of doctors to treat them aggressively. The title of the article was Rethink the Word Cancer. It was in the Wall Street Journal last week. And the panel even developed a soothing name for these new lesions, which we're now not supposed to call cancer, even though they are. And uh, they they dubbed them IDLE, I-D-L-E, which is an acronym for Indolent Lesions of Epithelial Origin. And they go on to say, uh, the lead uh, author, Laura Esselman, said, People have to get over the concept that early detection saves lives. And 
she based this on the fact that there were there was a drop in mortality, but it wasn't as great as expected. And it's sobering to realize that we only truly know the lethal nature of each cancer retrospectively. Uh, so their panel is was recommending that there should be a there should be less testing for early detection, and that actually they said in a new paradigm. There should be more restraint in treating those that are found so that their natural course can be better understood. Let that sink in for a moment. We already know the natural course of cancer, or we don't label it cancer. And the other straw argument part of this is that somehow physicians, when they see that a lesion is cancer, freak out and order every modality known to man. That couldn't be further from the truth. Every day, physicians, surgeons, oncologists, are making smart decisions about which cancers to just excise, wait, and watch, which cancers to treat aggressively. Uh, but this is the move that you're talking about and that I'm talking about where the central planners decide what's going to be done with what disease and when. And this is all part of the umbrella under the National Institute of Health, and it is part of the Comparative Effectiveness Research Team, and Ezekiel Emanuel is, is part of the National uh, Institute for Health. It's a, we're in frightening times. Well, you know, what we're also talking about is this is ultimate hypocrisy. Every single one of these planners, like Ezekiel Emanuel, fully expect that if they get cancer, they will receive the treatment that saves their lives at the expense of others. That is their hypocrisy. They believe that they are so smart and so their arrogance, that they are so smart and important to the world, to the, to the nation, to the whatever, that at the expense of some of us dying, that their lives should be spared. You know, it brings up, and of course, I read your excellent response to that article, um, and that is, you know, years ago, before we did cataract surgery, we used to get a chest film on any on every single patient. Every single patient was going to have surgery. We had a, an EKG, a chest film, and a bunch of lab work. It was just kind of the kind of the routine. Not a year went by that I did not pick up at least one or two cases of very very early lung cancer on that routine chest film. Now, the argument for abandoning that was that the pickup rate was not sufficient to warrant the chest x-ray expense. I don't know how much a chest x-ray costs, but I can't imagine how much that it costs all that much. But I will guarantee you that every single one of those persons who, on whom I detected by accident, by pure accident, a small early, early lung cancer who was then alive for many years thereafter, they would have paid anything to have that done. And that's the hypocrisy that we're facing here. The, the arrogant elitists who are running the show in this country, they have made themselves exempt so that they get everything at our expense. You bring up a very good point about how Medicare has meddled in the practice of medicine. And, of course, uh, when it was passed, it was specifically stated that Medicare should, would not involve itself in any way. Uh, there's a lot of pressure not to do any preoperative lab testing. 
on individuals. I happen to use monitored IV sedation with an anesthesiologist because I don't want my patient agitated or moving or having discomfort during a procedure that's highly technical and in which we're working under a microscope in very small uh, spaces. So there's a minimum a requirement that I have for electrolytes in a complete blood count and an EKG so that when we are doing this, we can safely uh, have the anesthesiologist administer the monitored IV sedation, and uh, we, we know we've done everything to keep the patient safe. And just last week, I, pre- I picked up vitamin B12 deficiency and pernicious anemia in a physician who had no idea was having tingling in his feet, and, of course, the usual physician goes to the the a fellow physician only when the need arises. Many physicians do that, unfortunately. Uh, and I, like you, over the years, I've picked up many potentially life-threatening uh, conditions with just that that screening to be able to get our patients safely through their surgery and their anesthetic experience. Well, my experience is, of course, identical because I also use the same kind of uh, IV sedation uh, during all the surgeries I do. And uh, our anesthesia, people really feel a lot more comfortable if they have this information. After all, they're, uh, they, they are on the line. If they're giving IV sedation and, you know, anesthesia, and they have no idea what's really going on with these patients, well, you know, they're at risk as well as the patient, of course. Uh, and, and this goes back to that moral and ethical dilemma that we talked about earlier, is that we know as physicians through our training how to take care of people. That's our training. We spend years and years training to be able to do the right thing, taking care of patients. And now Big Brother, the government, is coming in and saying, we know more than you do, and moreover, we're not going to allow you to take care of your patients the way you've been taught is proper. And they don't understand the system. It's evident that the authors of Obamacare have no earthly idea how the actual nuts and bolts of a practice runs. You know, 85% of American physicians are in private practice. And we were not called in in any sort of collaborative fashion when this law was being constructed, uh, nor did Hillary Clinton and her team during the Hillary Care uh, debacle uh, work in conjunction with actual care deliverers on the front line, which is the American doctor like you and me, as doctors and surgeons who care for our, our patients and uh, do so in a way where we're the ones who are facing them in the examination room and making the crucial decisions regarding uh, care options and advisability. Uh, the federal government program, especially Medicaid, has interfered greatly with the physician's ability to order certain tests and to order certain medications uh, when indicated. So let's talk uh, very briefly about some of these alternatives. You, How would you go about uh, having a practice in which uh, you are free of third-party payers? Is that something that's viable for physicians? How would that work? It is something that's viable for physicians. I think it's going to be extremely difficult unless we can do something uh, in terms of relief from Obamacare. And just in a sentence or two, if we could flip the Senate in 2014, I believe that there would be enough bipartisan support to suspend the individual mandate until the 2016 election, which would make Obamacare and this law 
uh, the central theme of the 2016 election, not just as it pertains to medicine, but as it pertains to the role that we want government to have in our lives. And I think now there are enough Americans that can see up close and personal that this might be more involvement than they bargained for that they can tolerate. Uh, so in that ideal world, I could see where we could establish uh, by getting the insurance companies to step forward, health savings account with catastrophic indemnity insurance, which is what health care insurance used to be like. And then I think it would be a, a transition that would be uh, fairly straightforward for established physicians to go to a cash-only or a, uh, a uh, concierge-type uh, practice, as the primary care people do, where individuals pay a certain fee. But I envision a situation where no one has to pay to be your patient, but that they have free choice of all providers and they can have, under the ideal situation, a transparent fee system where each physician would uh, post their own fees and uh, the patient would then know what they were getting into. Let's face it, right now there are a lot of people who have no idea what their employer even pays for their insurance policy. Well, they have no idea what their employer pays, and they have no idea what anything costs because they only say, you accept my insurance, I'll come to you. I do have a satellite office, which is cash only, and it's, I started it a year ago, and, the, and it's going along very well. But it's difficult when you have the expectation that a third party will be picking up the tab continually. Well, I, I, really, I really hope that you're right. I really hope that if we do uh, change the Senate in 2014, that we might be able to have a, enough of an impetus for the people to rise up and say, this is not good for us, and we need to change that. Um, unfortunately, I, I'm not as optimistic that no matter what we do in Washington, that the, that the will of the people will be listened to. Well, I share your pessimism in that regard, but honestly... Uh, even though we're all pretty fed up with the political uh, elites in Washington, D.C., really on both sides of the aisle, that is our vehicle for putting a stop to this. I don't see any other way. It's not going to, quote, you know, collapse upon itself. There's going to have to be some sort of, uh, you know, political or legislative uh, intervention. Uh, my concern is I, I believe we need to go back to the major medical indemnity and health savings account or pay as you go. I mean, I would rather pay my physician than pay a huge insurance uh, policy price per month. But my, my major concern with really moving to, towards a two-tier system, which is kind of what we're talking about, an insurance system, whether it's government or private, and then the private-based system, is... I don't want our patients to be the ones who are left holding the bag for this less legislative misadventure. And that's why I keep saying we've got to flip the Senate, because if we can do that and we can pressure them to delay the individual mandate, we will have a two-year uh, opportunity to educate the American public as to what is at stake if we cannot repeal this piece of legislation. And by the way, you know, the people who say Obamacare is here to stay, well, first of all, I hate to tell them, but Obamacare is not here. We've had 30 changes to Obamacare. What we have is the whim of Kathleen Sebelius, who's now exited, and uh, the current uh, administration 
their changes to the law to uh, shield the voter, if you will, from the true catastrophe that's going to happen after 2016. But I do feel that we can repeal it. Uh, If we put the pressure on Washington, D.C., I think there are enough people in in D.C. that are now recognizing that this is a huge mistake as well. Well, what we've talked about is that all of the law itself, I don't really care what the Supreme Court said. It was unconstitutional. All the, I agree. All the changes are unconstitutional. Uh, you can't pass law and then have the executive branch just decide on a whim what it's going to enforce. But we all know that diabolically, what they're enforcing and what they're letting go is all based upon who's going to vote for them in upcoming elections. So we have that kind of situation. I certainly hope that... That you're right, uh, Dr. Hughes, because it is such a tragedy to see our beloved profession really being being slaughtered as well as our patients being slaughtered for a political agenda, for a socialist agenda. Dr. Hughes, it has been a pleasure talking with you. We've had an incredibly great discussion, and I know my listeners are going to be hanging on every word. So thank you so much for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. (laughs) 